Good morning and happy Easter. My name is Spencer Bros. I'm the lead pastor here at St. Stephen's Church, and it is a blessing to be here with you today as we gather to worship the risen Lord. He is not dead. He is alive indeed. As we explore this day, we turn to one of the gospel accounts of the resurrection. We turn to John's gospel, chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciples set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, and he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in and saw and believed. Whereas yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head, the other at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. When I was in college, one of my roommates, his grandmother lived locally. And they were Greek, and they worshipped at a Greek Orthodox church near them. And every once in a while, she liked to feed us college boys. And I came to know her as Yaya Penny. And we were over at their house one one uh, Sunday after church, we didn't go with them to church, but they, they were feeding folks after church, and we went over there, and the phone rang. And she picks up the phone, and 
it's an English-speaking household, you know, and they're, but she picks up the phone and says, Christos Anesti. And I look at one of our other roommates, Mike, I was like, what does she say? He's like, I don't know. And I turned to Pete. This is his grandmother. <laughs> I said, what did she say? She said, Christ is risen. Oh, why did she answer the phone like that? It was in their tradition that any time you encountered somebody throughout the season of Easter, because today isn't just one day of Easter, it's 50 days of this season. When you greet somebody, you said, Christos Anesti, and they replied, Arithos Anesti, he is risen indeed. That's how they interacted as people, as a community of faith, reminding one another, celebrating with one another, even before they engage in the rest of their interaction with each other, that our Savior is not dead. He is alive. And they were building community, but also at the same time encouraging faith. I remember I, that I can see it now as I, clearly as I did 20 some years ago. And it still is powerful to me to know that people live in such such a deep faith community that every aspect of who they are, every interaction, she didn't, this, okay, part of this puzzle, part of this picture is, this precedes caller ID. Way precedes cell phone. Not way precedes, but enough. But there was no caller ID. You picked up the phone blind in those days. And whoever was on the other end of that phone got Christos Anesti. It's just who they were. That's how they lived. It was a way of proclaiming faith and celebrating a risen Savior. Every year I forget when I prepare my Easter sermon what a challenge it is. And not what a challenge it is to decide what to say. It's a challenge to figure out what I'm not going to say. Because there's so much to explore about the event around and following, the events around and following Jesus' resurrection, and how that continues to speak to us, and why it continues to matter. So, I'm going to not keep us here all day and focus on two main areas. And even then, we're still just scratching the surface. And even those two things. We're going to look at why this is real, because I think that's an important idea to, to consider. Why is this real? And then how this continues to matter. Not just why it matters, but how it continues to matter in our lives. In a recent book, um, in Is Easter Unbelievable? Rebecca McLaughlin takes a look at the historical accuracy of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's not a new topic, and there have been many books written about it. Her unique uh, take on this is she, at one time, she worked with college professors who were Christians and helping them to proclaim faith in public spaces. In 2016, she contacted uh, an MIT professor, Ian Hutchinson, and asked him, can you write an article on why you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Hutchinson continues to be a professor at MIT in nuclear science and engineering. 
and teaches and writes about plasma physics and nuclear fusion. In this article, in his article that he wrote in response to that is, can a scientist believe in the resurrection? He had three hypotheses. He argued for something he's even more committed to than the physics that he earns a living from. His belief that on the third day after Jesus was crucified that he indeed rose physically from the dead. There's a whole other article about the th about three hypotheses. I'll let you, I'll share it with you later. There's, again, there's a lot to leave out this morning. There's a lot to leave out if we're going to get to breakfast or Sunday school or whatever. But when addressing the assertion that science has disproved all miracles, because the idea that all, the, all these professors, particularly science field, must certainly have dispelled any notion of believing in the miracles of Scripture, much less the resurrection of Jesus. He said today's widespread materialist view that events contrary to the laws of science just can't happen is, is not a scientific fact, but a metaphysical doctrine. What's more, the doctrine that the laws of nature are inviolable is not necessary for science to function. Science offers natural explanations of natural events. It has no power or need to assert that only natural events happen. He's not arguing against science in general. This is not that. This is just that science is, argues itself, argues against resurrection. He goes on to say, in the case of Jesus' resurrection... We must consider the historical evidence, and the historical evidence for the resurrection is as good as almost any event of ancient history. This may not be a new idea, a new concept to you. Um, and then Rebecca McLaughlin goes on to, to uh, lay out some of this historical evidence. And I don't know that any of this was particularly new to me, but I liked how she put it. And she laid out, um, well, she laid out four, but we're going to, because I have to leave stuff out, I, I narrowed it down to three. Uh, the outbreak, the Romans, and the women. These were the three things that really uh, spoke to her about the historical accuracy of the resurrection. One is the outbreak. They spoke of the spread of Christianity as if it was a disease. Imagine that. They spoke of Christianity as a disease. Um, one of the uh, Roman historians, Tacitus, he wrote Christus, Greek for Christ. The founder of the name had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate, and the pernicious superstition was checked for a moment, only to break out once more, not merely in Judea, the home of the disease. But in Rome itself, where all things horrible or shameful in the world collect and become fashionable. This is not a positive article on the spread of Christianity. But they spoke of it as a disease. And McLaughlin points to this as part of the proof of the evidence of the reality of Jesus' resurrection was that things don't spread this quickly. At least in the ancient world, we... we we can find things out from the other side of the planet in an instant now, but things don't, didn't move that fast 2,000 years ago. In the first few centuries, Christianity traveled in every direction, spreading to uh, most of the continents in the Eastern Hemisphere, 
starting in Israel, spread not just to Europe, but also to Egypt, North Africa, Ethiopia, Turkey, Armenia, Iraq, Persia, and India. They say by 300 AD, despite intense periods of persecutions, historians estimated that 10%, 10% of the Roman Empire identified as Christian. It was just in a, a couple centuries. It spread rapidly. It spread rapidly even though its leader was killed. And it didn't spread because of Jesus' death was viewed as a martyrdom. It spread because the truth of it was carried by the disciples who become the apostles, the leaders of the movement after the fact. Rome was pretty good at putting down insurrections. They were very good at, at squashing anything that might impede upon their authority and upon their power. And Jesus being Lord was almost tantamount to him saying that he was king and he was going to um, challenge Rome for authority. They put it down pretty quickly. They're again, they were really good at putting down insurrections. But it didn't stop the moment. It may have slowed it, or at least they thought it slowed it, but then it spread very quickly. The second point she makes after the fact of the outbreak is the Romans themselves. And it might, she says it might seem odd to turn to the Romans as proof of the resurrection as ones who didn't want it to be known or anything to happen about that. But she points out not only are the Romans good at putting down insurrections, but they were really good at killing people and making sure that they were dead. And Jesus on the cross, one of the arguments against Jesus was that he didn't really die he kind of swooned and then passed out and maybe was comatose for a couple of days. And then he just kind of came back. And her argument is that Romans were really good at making sure the people up there on those crosses died. They even, Scripture tells us, they pierced his side just to make sure. And whether or not you might say turning to Scripture itself is a bit of a circular argument, but just the idea of knowing that they make sure that the dead, those who are meant to be dead, really and truly are dead. And then the third point is the women. Is women. The ancient world did not accept the authority of women as witness in any type of trial or any public discourse. One ancient writer even said, um, Hold on. I've talked past where I, where I am now. So, <clears throat> uh, the second century Greek philosopher Celsus, he uh, he said he apparently he laughed at the idea that a weeping woman was the first witness of the resurrection, saying after death Jesus rose again and showed the marks of his punishments and and how his hands had been pierced. But who saw this? A hysterical female, as you say, and perhaps some other of those who were deluded by the same sorcery. If you wanted to have a compelling, convincing argument for a thing, you did not put your, your, main, your first spokesperson, your first voice of the resurrection, the first witness of the event, to be a woman 2,000 years ago. 
But here we, but we know as we see Scripture that Mary Magdalene is the first preacher of the good news, first proclaimer of the gospel, that Jesus is not dead, that he's alive. So those are just a few of the ways in which we can look at the resurrection and, for me, help to convince me what, of our, what I already knew and already believed, rather, that this is a real event. So moving from why is this real to how does this matter to me now? While there is indeed the event of the resurrection, it is more than an occurrence. And it's more than how we spent, are going to spend our eternity. It's meant to be a part of our daily lives, our ongoing living as followers of Christ. Not just the idea of the resurrection, but its influence and its power. Again, as I said earlier, Easter isn't just meant to be one day. It's a season in the life of the church. And actually, every Sunday is meant to be a mini-Easter. That's why we worship on Sundays. We worship, we don't worship on the Jewish Sabbath. We worship on Sunday because they, they excuse me, my mouth and tongue got ahead of myself. They determined, they were determined to worship on the day of the resurrection. That's why we worship on Sundays. It's a, it's a weekly celebration of the resurrection. Easter is meant to be about a way of life. But the church, just to make sure we have it in our heads, it is a whole season. Today begins it, and then it, won't, it will continue up until the day of Pentecost. And it's meant to be a time of reflecting on the power of the tomb being empty. To consider that, about all that, that, that continues to be a part of the reality that the grave is empty. He was in there, but it's now empty. Something happened there. Not just on the cross, but in the empty tomb. And it continues to have power and influence over our lives, and it will continue to do so for eternity. Over the last few weeks of Lent, we've been um, using a, a uh, devotional written by Kate Bowler and a colleague whose name I always forget, and I'm so sorry, because she's also she's a co-author of it, and I just I don't ever remember her name. Um, but they had this wonderful uh, book of blessings. And it's not blessings of the nice things of life, of the happy, happy, joy, joy stuff. It's blessings of the things that we encounter every day, including the not-so-happy, happy, joy, joy stuff, even the downright bad and ugly stuff looking for blessings in the midst of that. When Mary Magdalene was in that garden, she was in the midst of her grief. Kay Bowler uses the word, she was in her unhope. Not just despair, but her unhope. And while in the midst of her despair, the reality of Jesus' resurrection was still true, she was weeping, and Jesus was alive. She just hadn't turned around to see the fellow who she thought was the gardener yet. In our lives, we endure hardship and pain and suffering sometimes. 
Most of the time, the most of what we, what we experience might be inconvenience, but sometimes we're in the deepness of it. And just because we're in the deepness of it doesn't mean that Jesus isn't still risen from the dead. But the reality of his resurrection gives us hope for what's on the other side. Sometimes as we come to Easter, we, we can relate uh, more to the rejection that occurred on that Thursday night when Peter denied Jesus three times. Sometimes we come to Easter and we can relate to the grief of Jesus' gruesome death on, uh, on Good Friday. Or maybe we relate to the utter despair of that holy Saturday. I, in my mind, I believe that that must have been the loneliest day any of those followers of Jesus experienced. Even if they were gathered together in the same space, that must have been the loneliest day of their lives. And maybe we relate more with that. But even when they were in the midst of their despair or even we're in the midst of our unhopeness, or that's not, that's not a word either, but we'll go with it. The reality of the resurrection is still true. And it continues to hold out hope for us and to remind us of God's blessings. Throughout the last several weeks, we've been looking at the diff- some of the different aspects of our humanity our fragility, curiosity, suffering, loneliness, mourning, and rejection. And in the midst of those, God still offers blessing. In our fragility, God blesses our dust. In our curiosity, God offers us surprises of blessing. In our suffering, God teaches us how to hope. In our loneliness, God seeks us and finds us and welcomes us home. In our mourning and sorrow, God weeps with us and extends comfort towards us and our feelings of rejectedness God continues to welcome us sometimes we don't feel the the joy that we don't feel like we are experiencing the joy of Easter that we should have but we can remember that even though we might not be living our best life now as the world tells us we need to be doing all the time that we are still blessed Being blessed is a way of speaking spiritually, Buller says, about how God sees us and how we might imagine the world made right again. From Friday to just before dawn, on that Easter morning, the followers of Jesus, their world was was gone. It wasn't just undone, it was gone. But come dawn, On Easter, it was still gone, but there was a brand new, beautiful, new creation waiting for them in the resurrection of Jesus. And a new power behind their mission to spread his good news, the story of the the kingdom of God at hand, so close that you can touch it. Of reaching out to the least, the last, and the lost, reconciling humanity. To God. That continues to be the gift of Easter. It was true on that day, and it's con- true every day since and forevermore. We live in the midst of resurrection, even in, when we live in the midst of despair. May the joy of Easter carry you through the darkest days. May it propel you through the, through the brightest and most joyous days. But may it carry you every day of your life.
and may we live it evidently for the world around us. Amen. Let's pray. Loving God, thank you for the gift of your Son. Showing the whole world just how much you love us. For sending your Son into the world that he might live among us, to know us as we are, to experience life as we experience it, to teach us how to live and how to love, to suffer and die for our sins, and to be raised to life, conquering death. Lord, we give thanks. We give thanks for so much, but most of all for your Son, that he is risen indeed. Amen.